Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get at what happened, which is also very important, which happened in Parliament again, and that is the Ethics Committee, of which you are a permanent member for the Democrats, was trying to uh, obtain information about the speaking fees paid to the Trudeau family over a period of years, and you were met with a liberal filibuster. Explain to us, please, we've seen and read the reports, but what was it like to be in the middle of that? Well, Roy, well, you just heard the Prime Minister speak on your show where he said that, uh, you know, the Liberals are moving on, but they would let the Independent Committee do their work. Well, they're not letting the Independent Committee do their work. Uh, we've been sandbagged for over a week. We've gone hour after hour uh, with every possible denial and obfuscation. And no counteroffers, no, like, say, okay, guys, how do we work this out? Um, the Ethics Committee had only had two full meetings on the Wee Scandal when the Prime Minister prorogued Parliament. So to say, well, we've done all the work, well, no, we haven't. And part of that work is verifying the documents, and we're having the same problem at the Finance Committee. So we have offered uh, to try and set up a special committee to move this all over to. Uh, we've gotten a lot of games. The Liberals say they're going to support us, but we can't have a committee that's run by the Liberal government because we've seen what happened with Jody Wilson-Raybos, the study with justice, they shut it down. We see it finance, uh, they keep uh, stopping, and at ethics, the pro- prorogation. We need to get an answer. We can find a way to do this. It, it, this should not be rocket science. And it's, I think, deflecting a lot of energy that needs to be focused on the pandemic right now. Mm-hmm. When the Prime Minister says, and he said that in that clip we played, that uh, they're being totally transparent, your reply to that is? Well, if they were totally transparent, then we would be get we would have gotten these documents that were called for last July. We'd verify them. We'd move on. If the ver if the documents verify what's been said, uh, we've we've agreed to all the provisions to protect the privacy of the Trudeau family. I have no intention, Roy, of trying to embarrass anyone in the family here. The question is: is there were a lot of payments made? And the other question, Roy, that I think to me is at the heart of this. We've asked for the speaking uh, arrangements with Justin Trudeau and we, because the Prime Minister said he was never paid. Is that a fact? If we can't verify that, then I think the Prime Minister is in big trouble. If the Prime Minister was never paid, show us the Yeah, well, stepping away from the WE charity, we know the Prime Minister used to do speaking engagements while he was a member of Parliament and being paid as an MP because he was paid $20,000 by a charity in New Brunswick to go and speak, and it was uh, they were opening a center for seniors, I believe it was seniors, uh, and, and they lost money. And so they asked for the $20,000 back. You remember this, I'm no, I know, because you were in Parliament at the time, and Mr. Oh, Trudeau refused to give the money that, back, really. right? Yeah. And then eventually I, he did when the pressure was too great. Yeah, I think the Prime Minister made a couple of hundred thousand dollars while he was the youth critic of the Liberal Party and speaking about youth engagement. To me, Roy, I found that appalling at the time. We pushed the Ethics Commissioner for an investigation at the time. The Ethics Commissioner said, well, that was his previous job. But, you know, I speak at high schools. I speak to youth organizations all the time. I would never in a million years think of paying me for this because I'm there representing the people of Canada. But that being said, at the same time, 
he was dealing with we. And maybe at the time the, it did not seem like an issue, but it may be a real serious issue now, knowing that the Prime Minister did not recuse himself and all that money was going to be mm-hmm. paid to we. So these are conflicts of interest that the laws of Canada say a Prime Minister cannot get himself in. So if he wasn't paid, show us the documents, we move on, and we can get to other pressing, pressing issues. But they're, they're stonewalling us right now, Roy. So yeah. I'm hoping this week we can get some common sense. Uh, I'm going to go on Monday. We're going to try and negotiate. Come on. Like, we've got work to do here. Stop yeah. making our, our parliament look like a circus. And as an aside, I've just seen two emails come in from people who are saying that they've been hearing that maybe there's been a recall of MPs to Ottawa, possibly a snap election. Have you heard anything? Well, they, this has been, uh, you know, this idea that uh, this is going to go to a confidence vote has been floated this weekend. Uh, Roy, I think it would be staggeringly irresponsible as the pandemic numbers are skyrocketing right now that a government would bring the House down, plunge us into an election and basically shut the work of of the government for three months to avoid (laughs) answering what's in those documents. You'd think there'd have to be something explosive. So uh, I I think it's everybody's playing chicken, which is, uh, I just get so frustrated with, we've got work to do. So um, that's, that's the rumor out there, but nobody's, nobody's made those threats yet, but everybody loves to speculate that this is going to escalate. For me, I just want to get this work done. We got a lot of stuff to get done here, Roy. It's been very frustrating. Yeah, so nobody's called you and said get back to Ottawa because there's going to be a, a vote of some kind. You haven't had that kind of uh, recall for yourself. No, I'm I'm headed to Ottawa because I want to get work on this committee. But right now, Ottawa is working. We're we're working basically in shifts, so that a lot of it's done by Zoom. If they had to do a confidence vote, not that there's been one being suggested, it would probably be done wherever we are across the country. But again, I I I disagree with the Prime Minister on a lot of stuff. I would like to be standing right beside him, supporting the work on the pandemic. Uh, and it would be really irresponsible uh, to make these kind of threats now. So let's deal with this crisis. Let's figure out what happened here, Roy. My gut mm-hmm. feeling is is that a lot of senior liberals are trying to please the boss. They knew that the Kielberger connection to the Trudeaus. They thought this was such a really cool and fun thing because this was really where Justin's head is at. And they came up with this. And he signed off without recusing himself and it was a bad idea so let's just own up and figure out how this went off the rails the way it did all right given the fact that they don't appear to be willing to even negotiate with you as you pointed out during our first part of our conversation and the filibusters have continued day after day do you see is it your sense that there may well be something explosive in this documentation and let's go back to something you said if there were and there's no evidence that this is happening. At least we haven't heard anything specific. But if an election call were suddenly, snap election were suddenly called, would it be your sense? It's because there there would be a real effort being made to skate past what might be in, in information you're looking for? Well, I think it's, you know, it's always dangerous to speculate. My sense, Roy, is that we know that the Trudeaus were paid. Uh, after we were told they weren't paid. And we know it's somewhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand is knowing that Margaret Trudeau or Sasha got paid an extra ten grand here or there. I don't know. But I do know that we've asked for the documents and whether Justin Trudeau got paid. And we've always taken him at his word up till now. 
I'm more interested in those numbers, Roy. Like, what what did that those contracts look like? Did he mm-hmm. do all this for free as a member of Parliament, or was there if there was any payment there, that would be very damning for the government? So that's where I'm. That's where my spidey sense is going. Like, wh- why the obstruction here? Now, I, I know the Liberals are saying it's not fair to bring in the Prime Minister's family. I get that. Uh, I think that that's a very unusual situation. But this is a case of the Kielbergers, I think, setting up a situation of gaining influence by paying the family. So we we got to clear this up. And the Prime Minister put himself in conflict here. And he's under Section 5 of the Conflict of Interest Act. It's his job to keep his family affairs in order so he's not in a conflict um, that didn't happen here so we we need to get these answers so if i can just ask you to switch to the finance committee for for a moment and share your thoughts again on what's happening there because the finance committee is asking for uh information or at least some of the maybe all of it the, the redacted information to be made available to them and the, and, and the liberals are again pushing back and saying no this is really something that should be handled by the uh, by the ethics commissioner and they just don't want to see personal information of bureaucrats made available which is not what it's about no i the the, the redacted documents uh, i think are really really important because um what we saw gives us enough of a jigsaw puzzle to show that there was definite political involvement at the ministerial level, that this was not driven by the civil servants. This was driven by, for example, Minister Chagger. But we don't know if there was actually trigger moments that made this thing go through because of the blacked out documents. So we need to see those. And uh, I think it's an issue of the privilege of parliamentarians. That's that's what the debate's about, and privilege is an important thing. You cannot interfere with the privilege of parliamentarians to do their work. So uh, I, I'm really surprised that this is going on at finance because I have an enormous respect for the chair, Wayne Easter. Wayne and I go back a long time. So one more question in the minute we have left. What now? What happens now? Does, you said you're, you're preparing for Monday. Is this just going to drag on? Uh, it can't drag on, Roy. we got work to do, so... Um, I think we're going to go back and see if we can untie this Gordian knot. We need to get this committee struck. It's either going to be a committee uh, that favors how the Conservatives want to do it, or we'll say to the Liberals, listen, you want a committee that's fair, you want to make sure it's done in a judicious manner, then give us something to work with here. But don't think you're going to get an easy ride, because you guys are the ones that caused this scandal. So. Uh, okay. It's going to be what it's going to be, Roy. We're we're going to go in. I'm I'm always positive. I always figure there's a solution, but uh, we're going to get we're going to get there one way or the other. Good talking to you, Charlie, and uh, you're always welcome to be the co-host of this show. Uh, I love being the co-host. I'll come back another time. We'll All right, music next time. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks, Charlie Angus, NDP member of Parliament. And we will talk music with Charlie because one of the songs on his new album is something that you will really appreciate. And we'll get into that more. But this issue with the Ethics Committee and the Finance Committee and the filibuster by the Liberals just cannot be allowed to continue. Three professors of medicine from Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford uh, universities authored the declaration which is challenging COVID lockdowns as dangerous to the health and well-being of people around the world. And thousands of doctors have signed their support, including the 2013 Nobel Prize winner for chemistry. However, there are also many doctors and uh, medical professionals who are strongly challenging the Great Barrington uh, Declaration, including Dr. Anthony Fauci in the United States. 
Dr. J. Bhattacharya is one of the principal authors of the Barrington Declaration. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University, the director of the Stanford Center of Demography and Economics for Health and Aging. His research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations, and his most recent research, research rather, focuses on the epidemiology of COVID-19. Dr. Bhattacharya joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Thank you for the time, Dr. Bhattacharya. Uh, So is the fundamental message of the Barrington Declaration that lockdowns just don't work? Yes, that's exactly the point, uh, Roy. And I I thank you for giving me the chance to to talk with your audience. Um, COVID-19 itself is very dangerous for people who are older uh, and much less dangerous for people who are younger. Uh, In fact, what we've seen from the scientific evidence coming out is that the lockdowns themselves create enormous harm on net for non-vulnerable people, people who are, who are say, under the age of uh, 65, um, whereas the, the risk from COVID is higher in the older, older people. So what, what do you do with that? Well, what you should do is you should protect, use all our resources and ingenuity to protect the older population and other people who are vulnerable, who are at high risk from COVID, whereas people who are, who are at lower risk, you know, on the order of one in uh, one or three in 10,000 uh, mortality risk if, if you should get COVID-19 infection. Uh, younger people, the, the, uh, let, let people live free because the harms of the lockdown are greater. It's, it's simple common sense in, one, in, in some way. Uh, people in the United States, for instance, one in four young adults seriously considered suicide in June. One in 10 seriously considered suicide in the population at large. Uh, worldwide, uh, 130 million additional people are at risk of starvation as a consequence of the economic collapse caused by the lockdown. Um, there's there's a, a, a heartbreaking set of uh, stories about people skipping chemotherapy because they're more afraid of COVID than cancer. Uh, diabetes management, uh, immunizations have, have, uh, have plummeted. So we, we should expect to see a resurgence of diseases like polio, uh, diphtheria worldwide. Um, the lockdown harms are enormous, and by focusing only on COVID, we've ignored those harms. And so the Great Barrington Declaration is calling for a return to standard public health principles, where we focus on the whole human and not simply on one disease. Protect the vulnerable with every ounce of effort we can. Use testing, all our resources. Protect the nursing homes. Protect people living in multi-generational homes. Don't expose people who are older and are required to work to COVID, make it accommodations so they don't have to, to, to do that. Uh, use, use disability money or other, other monies to do that, uh, to protect them. Uh, the, the current policy has failed. Dr. Bhattacharya, thousands of doctors have signed on to support the Barrington Declaration, including, I read, the 2013 Nobel Prize winner for chemistry. Yet almost immediately, and you know this better than I, there's been significant pushback from numerous other medical experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci of President Trump's task force on the COVID-19 pandemic, who argued very strongly that herd immunity or focused protection, as you and your colleagues are calling it, is far too dangerous a concept to pursue, will cost lives, and that herd immunity doesn't guarantee anything because there are cases of COVID reinfection. What do you say to that? I think he's simply mistaken. Uh, first of all, Herd immunity, uh, that's become sort of a poison word, but in fact, it's just a basic biological fact about diseases that induce any degree of immunity at all, even if it's for a limited time. Um, So he's sort of misunderstood what the nature of herd immunity actually means. If you keep, uh, if you're infected and you remain uh, protected from infection for the uh, six months, that's enough for for 
the models to, to imply that there will eventually be herd immunity, no matter what our strategy. Um, the key idea, the key point there is that regardless of what we do, the end point of this epidemic is a state of endemic infection, just like the other four human coronaviruses that are in common circulation. They're controlled by herd immunity. Uh, you know, there's no vaccine for them. So the, the key question then is just what do we do in the meantime? Do we expose our vulnerable as we've been doing so that people die in nursing homes and are forced to go work, essential workers, poor essential workers are forced to go work in, in a, where, uh, I mean, or, or and, and, and do we expose our non-vulnerable to the enormous harms from the lockdowns, or do we do something much saner, much safer? So we protect our vulnerable, we, lock, we really lock out, we work very hard on our, our nursing homes to protect, protect people there, um, and at the same time, we let people live their, their normal lives who are not vulnerable. Uh, and and, uh, and eventually, herd immunity, no matter what we do, will, 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 will result. Uh, whether we wait until a vaccine or, or whatever we do, we're going to, uh, that's the end point of the epidemic. The only question is, how do we get there safely? It's like gravity, right? We think about gravity when you're landing an airplane. Um, you don't think about a gravity strategy to land an airplane. You just have to cope with gravity. The only question is, how do you safely land the airplane? Is and there the a place... way to do it is... I'm sorry, is, is there a place in the world you would point to as an example of focused protection or herd immunity being successful? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it herd immunity as being successful. Again, it's just a biological fact. It's just, it's, it will happen one or the other. And I don't know that any, any country is yet at, at that state. Um, I mean, I think some countries have, have followed uh, closely, closer to this plan and, uh, than others. I mean, I think... Um, uh, but every, no country I know of has followed this plan uh, very well or perfectly. Uh, I think you know you, people sometimes point to Sweden as a place where focus protection ideas have worked. Um, but in fact, in March in Sweden, they didn't do a very good job protecting their nursing homes. Um, they have ha- had a more uh, success in reducing the harms from non-COVID uh, uh, deaths because they've, they've sort of been more open to non-vulnerable people living their lives normally. Um, but I, I don't think any, any country I would point to has been entirely successful at this. I might point to some states, right? So I think Florida, I think, is, is currently following a strategy that's been something like successful on this. Like they've, they've had a lower fraction of their COVID deaths than elderly deaths than many other places, and their number of, elder, and the number of, of deaths per capita is actually much lower than many places. Um, so I think places like Florida, you know, they've, they've famously opened up uh, the, the, the economy to non-vulnerable people. Maybe some states might be example. I think I would point to any place as a as a yeah. early example of this. Let, let me ask you the layperson's question. Uh, why is there such a split, or why is there a split at all, between doctors and, uh, and other scientists on this issue? Science doesn't operate on consensus agreement, no matter what some people may argue. Um, why, why is there, why are you on one side and Dr. Fauci and other medical professionals are on the other side of this argue, argument or the position that it's time to, uh, to, uh, get involved and pick up on focused protection? I mean, I think, I think the other side has in its, in the back of its head a, a particular idea, which is the best way to, to protect the vulnerable is by controlling the spread among the non-vulnerable. That's a scientifically testable idea. And it, in my view, the evidence has come in that that strategy does not protect the vulnerable. Uh, we follow that strategy in many states in the United States and many countries around the world. And yet, nevertheless, a very high number of, of our elderly population has been exposed. Um, so I think they, 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 they had a hypothesis 
that I think now the data have come in have proven to be false. And I would hope that they've changed their minds on consequence. The other thing I think I've seen with the other side is that is there's sort of a, an underplaying of the harms from the lockdown, which in my view are a- absolutely devastating. I cited a statistic earlier about 130 million people uh, at risk of starvation because of the economic collapse caused by the lockdown. So that's, those are real people's lives. Those are not uh, just a, a statistic to be ignored. And yet in, in the calculations and in the discussions I see among people who uh, oppose this idea, they, they, they seem to underplay the, the real harms in the lockdown in their, in their thinking. Um, I mean, I think these are reasonable people. I think that these are they're, 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 they're smart, reasonable people, and they're moral people. I think if they were to uh, look at this evidence with a new eyes, they would see that the plan we're proposing is actually the, the more reasonable one, the one, the one actually that we followed with almost every other epi- large-scale epidemic in the 20th century, um, uh, you know, to, to, to some extent. So it's, it's uh, you know, I think it's, it's kind of a return to standard public health principles as opposed to the novel lockdowns that we've been doing that have never been tried in, in, uh, in, in uh, um, you know, about 500 years. You know, one of the things we've heard, and this is deeply concerning, and I think you mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation, is that uh, many people, thousands of people, many thousands have had their surgeries uh, and and medical treatment delayed because they've been afraid to go to hospital emergency rooms or simply because the ORs weren't available because of the, this was not early in stage one or the first wave of, of COVID. Uh, that's a huge concern. So... My, my by extension question is this, from the position of the Great Barrington Declaration, is the flaw of lockdowns, one of the flaws of the lockdowns, that they invariably are announced too late to be effective? Or too early, right? I think uh, in the, I mean, I think both both, both are right. Uh, we don't know how to time the, the lockdown so that they are actually might be effective. I think in, in, the, in much of the United States, and actually, frankly, in much of Canada, the lockdowns arrived much earlier than 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 uh, they were needed to to prevent hospitals from overflowing, um, and, and I think uh, they they sort of been stayed on, uh, and, and 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 they all, I think like people sometimes point to examples like New Zealand, and uh, and and uh, and say look they, there they imposed a lockdown that actually eliminated COVID from the island, there they they actually did arrive early enough. In fact, they were kind of perfectly timed. There were only a few infections on the island. They identified them, and, and they stamped it out on the island for, for you know, 120 days until it came back. Um, I, I think uh, that pro- the problem with that idea is that you can somehow predict the timing. It's pretty clear that in the United States and much of the rest of the world, we had no idea when we imposed the lockdown that the disease was already too widespread for it to be uh, effective in eliminating the disease. Um, we should not think about lockdowns as a mechanism to eradicate infection. The lockdown in history has ever eradicated an infection, and the, nor will this one. Um, the only the only thing we can think about uh, at this point is what harms are the lockdowns causing? Are they actually effective in protecting our vulnerable? And the answer to both of those questions is no. I have about a minute, or just a little more than a minute, Dr. Bhattacharya. Is there a, is there a middle ground here? Is there an opportunity for you and your colleagues? And uh, Dr. Fauci and his colleagues to arrive at a conclusion that would be mutually acceptable, or, or will you always be on? Do you think on opposite sides of this issue? No, I, I think science always operates with an idea that consensus is possible. And I, I remain hopeful. I mean, I think, for instance, I, I'm pretty sure that if, uh, if folks uh, like Dr. Fauci 
uh, were to just talk with us, they would have ideas about how to protect the vulnerable that would be very constructive. Um, and I would welcome that. Uh, but I also would hope that they would they would acknowledge the harms of the lockdown on the non-vulnerable, on the people who are who are uh, you know younger and that don't face a very high mortality from COVID. You know, like an order of one one to three in a thousand. Um, no, we're three in a ten thousand. Um, so you know, maybe two in a two in a thousand overall. I mean, for those people. I think uh, the, there really is a fundamental change in the idea of how we deal with the epidemic. We think about this as a way to we need to control spread in there to protect the vulnerable, but in fact, we do not. That idea has led to harm, and so I, so I think I could hope that uh, in conversation we could show, we could discuss the evidence around that, and they would they would see the same things that the tens of the ten thousand other scientists and, and public health folks are, are seeing with us. But those those lockdowns are, are doing more harm than good. Mr. Person, few people would know U.S. border issues better than you. You were director of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection for two years under President Obama from 2010 to 2012. Also served under President Bill Clinton for five years, coordinating federal law enforcement on the border from South Texas to Southern California. How would the original decision to close the U.S.-Canada border to non-essential travel during COVID have been taken? What would have gone into making that decision on both sides of the border? So at the outset, uh, when uh, this initial decision was announced in March, uh, I said at the time, and I I continue to think that it was a very uh, constructive step uh, by three uh, governments of North America. Uh, Mexico and the United States and Canada and the United States acted in parallel bilateral fashion, but they actually took the same steps, and obviously the decisions uh, embodied the same uh, criteria on on both the U.S. northern border and uh, the U.S. southern border. The uh, decision to limit non-essential passenger traffic, while at the same time keeping open the trade flows, of massive trade flows uh, coming from Canada to the United States, uh, for example, I thought was a a very sound and sensible approach at the time. Uh, That uh, mandate has been extended each month, as you know, Roy, from uh, March uh, every 30 days and has been extended again uh, and will be considered, and I'm virtually certain will be extended again on the 20th of October, right around the corner, uh, calendar-wise. The uh, difficulty is that while the initial decision taken was sound, and uh, I think for the most part remains sound, there's been no follow-up by the three governments or Canada and the United States uh, uh, separately, uh, or Mexico and the United States separately, to actually uh, start to examine how are we going to move to the next phase of this? Uh, How are we going to... uh, develop the criteria that will permit us to uh, resume uh, normal passenger traffic across our borders. This is an important question, and I believe uh, there are reasons explaining why uh, it hasn't been taken, but I think we need to move quickly to set up the kinds of uh, collaborations that have characterized border affairs in the last generation and need to do so particularly now in this challenging time. Mr. Burson, what needs to be done then? 
We obviously are at uh, a a moment in which the challenges of border management uh, must take into account public health concerns, just as after 9-11, they built the security regime into our the DNA of our cross-border relationships. Uh, This involves a a need to do the kind of consultation that has come to characterize bilateral relations between Canada and the United States, but has been conspicuous by its absence in in terms of trying to uh, develop the health, public health protocols uh, that will permit us to move forward. So, for example, uh, we need to have uh, uh, technology enlisted to support the effort. We need to have temp- temperature scanners. Uh, we need to have uh, a whole variety of uh, uh, public health uh, tools brought to bear to permit us to distinguish between those who are infected, those who could be infected, and those who have uh, uh, already uh, uh, gone through the uh, virus and uh, are uh, have certain immunities built up. Uh, this is uh, the kind of... Uh, uh, work that uh, one would have hoped would already be started uh, at the federal levels between our national governments, but also we have 127 border crossings between Canada and the United States, and one one always looks to the local authorities and to local communities to uh, come forward with solutions. In fact, we're starting to see that activity uh, in the absence of government action, uh, non-governmental organizations and think tanks are beginning to step up to the challenge. There's a coalition, a smart border coalition, a future border coalition that's working on this issue in the Pacific Northwest. The Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., which contains the uh, Canada Institute, now led by Christopher Sands, is uh, starting a public health task force involving Uh, leaders from uh, both sides of the border. So the work is beginning, but this is what we have to double down on because until we reach a vaccine, Roy, and a vaccine that is not only tested effective, but also distributed uh, broadly and effectively, uh, we're going to be continue to face a uh, challenge from this uh, uh, pandemic. I don't think most people perhaps understand just how interdependent we are. And I'm talking about the three North American nations, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Uh, Our supply chain, for example, we uh, have parts for certain goods manufactured in all three countries or in two of the countries with the final assembly taking place in the third. So there's really no time to be lost, is there, if we... Our, our economies are under tremendous strain at the moment. Given that reality, the interdependence, we have to move very quickly. Absolutely. Uh, the genius of uh, uh, NAFTA and now the, uh, uh, the successor agreement, the USMCA or uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, TMEC, it's called in Mexico, and, uh, and uh, Canada has its own name for the agreement, but the the uh, the genius of, uh, of of the trade that's grown up in the last uh, 20 years or 30 years uh, as a result of the U.S.-Canada agreement and then the North American Free Trade and now the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, trade agreement is uh, is massive. We uh, have now uh, 
more than $700 billion in trade between Canada and the United States, and just under that between, Canada, between Mexico and the United States. More than $1.3 trillion of trade. And it's not trade, as you point out, Roy, in the classical sense. It's not foreign trade uh, in international trade. Rather, what we do is we share production platforms and we make things together. Uh, automobiles being the uh, prime example with parts from uh, Ontario regularly being used in factories in uh, Puebla, Mexico, uh, to bring cars uh, destined for uh, import into the United States. Uh, this is the, uh, the nature of the contemporary economy. And while in the context of the pandemic, we've kept much of that trade uh, continuing to flow, uh, the obstacles to having the movement of people uh, in, in those companies uh, having the free uh, access across borders is a continuing handicap. So to keep that trade moving, to capitalize on what has brought the 17% of all uh, world trade takes place in North America, uh, we need to uh, actually address the kinds of uh, matters that we talked about uh, previously right. in terms of building public health into the uh, security uh, protocols of cross-border management. There is talk about concerns, if I can just switch a little bit here, about potential civil unrest, including significant violence, following the November 3rd election, regardless of who wins. Pollster John Zogby told us last weekend that approximately 20% of both Republican and Democrat voters may well not be willing to accept results and react potentially violently. If I may ask you to wear your Homeland Security hat for this question, is that scenario being actively planned for, do you think, now within the U.S. government, uh, would you expect? And would that does that have the potential to affect the supply chain from the United States to Canada if, in fact, that scenario were to occur? It, it depends, Roy, on, uh, on the margin uh, of victory of one candidate or, or the other in, in basically six states that are the uh, uh, key electoral pivots in um, in this election as they as they uh, have been because of our electoral college system uh, it would be a uh, uh, a difficult uh, aftermath in the event that we have uh, disputes in all of those six uh, uh, states or a uh, even one or two of them would be dispositive in the final electoral college vote uh, having said that uh, is a uh, function that uh, is being prepared for uh, at the state and local level where most public safety authorities and uh, capacity uh, reside. Uh, to the extent that uh, federal authorities uh, at the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of, of Justice are uh, uh, gearing up to intervene in local circumstances, that uh, for which there has been a precedent in the dispatch of federal agents to Portland that would be a uh, departure from our traditions. Uh, and one hopes uh, that uh, there will be a restraint exercised. As Paul Rosenzweig, uh, the former deputy uh, secretary of uh, DHS uh, in the Bush administration uh, indicated, uh, that uh, deployment uh, may not be uh, unlawful, but it's awful uh, nonetheless. And I concur in that. So what we... Uh, what we should uh, 
prepare for in the event of a uh, very close election is uh, for there to be uh, uh, civil uh, unrest, uh, and perhaps uh, it goes to uh, to further um, uh, uh, degrees of uh, violence or demonstration. Uh, I think that there is a local capacity to control this, supplemented as as uh, in, as always uh, by uh, state authorities and uh, the ability to deploy the national guard. Uh, there is uh, there is no um, uh, there is no uh, doubt that this is a contingency being planned for. But you know, Roy, we've seen more difficult times uh, in this country, and while the polarization is great, uh, the uh, sanctity of uh, of the rule of law, I think, in the end, will prevail. Mr. Burson, if I may, I and I thank you for the time. I just have two more questions for you. If I can go back to the border issue, this is a question that is asked repeatedly. Our borders are effectively closed, except for the essential goods and the supply chain, as we talked about. Why are airports still allowing for Canada-U.S. travel? Yeah, there is a, uh, uh, a more contained environment within the airport, and uh, the uh, ability to uh, actually do the kind of monitoring uh, and, and scanning that uh, I mentioned before cha- that is a challenge in the larger land border context so that the uh, contained environment uh, and the steps that have been taken by airlines and civil aviation authorities to uh, uh, build in uh, the kinds of protections that are not, uh, feasible to implement broadly on land border crossings, I think is the, uh, is the distinction. And, uh, it is a distinction with a difference in terms of uh, of the environment. Uh, so that that, to my mind, explains uh, a uh, viable uh, distinction in the way this has been handled. Uh, but we do need to address uh, the larger issues, and they are issues that uh, are in search of uh, practicable solutions and satisfactory solutions, not perfect solutions. And my final question, Mr. Burson, how cooperatively, and this brings us full circle, I think, how cooperatively does the United States work with Canada on border security? We have for decades in this country expressed concern about the importation of illegal firearms from the United States. But that's ultimately Canada's security concern at the border, is it not? Uh, yes, but uh, there there is uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of uh, of coordination. And while you know, there's also concern about things coming uh, south uh, from uh, from Canada uh, throughout our history, whether it was uh, 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 liquor during prohibition or uh, ecstasy in the uh, in the uh, narcotics age. Uh, these are problems that uh, we have confronted together from uh, uh, from the 19th century uh, on. And I'm confident that uh, we can do that, do it in the context of uh, COVID. Now, we're faced with uh, difficult situations uh, in terms of uh, uh, politics of, uh, of the two countries now and the uh, leaders in the two countries not having the uh, level of trust and confidence in one another that uh, we've often seen. But that's not the first time that's happened. And ultimately, what uh, we rely on Canadians and uh, Americans alike, is the fact that we really are uh, one uh, North America. And uh, for all of the differences uh, 
what brings us together is actually stronger, and geography is the first fact. Uh, we're not, uh, we're even more than neighbors, as uh, Ronald Reagan used to note, because neighbors can move from one another, and we can't, and we've always made the best of that. And uh, we are uh, one, uh, one continent uh, with uh, two sovereignties, uh, very well respected. Mr. Barrett, do you have an idea that there's a smoking gun in the information you're seeking about the speaking fees paid to the Trudeau family, perhaps catching Mr. Trudeau in an untruth? Is, is there any sense among committee members on the opposition that this is behind the filibuster? Well, I mean, if if that wasn't the thought before, it certainly is now. It's uh, it's unprecedented to have a, a government go to such great lengths to filibuster multiple parliamentary committees in the way that they are doing now. They're filibustering at the at the the finance committee, at the ethics committee. In fact, um, they they've become uh, uncooperative on all standing committees, uh, regardless of of what we're looking for. Uh, it seems in protest to. Uh, the opposition ordering these documents, which had been ordered previously uh, by majority vote on these committees this summer. So uh, it's, um, it's a problem that we've had testimony from, from ministers, uh, from uh, government officials, from folks at the WE organization, and we had contradicting accounts of what happened. And we need documents to, uh, to either uh, verify that their testimony is true or it'll reveal that there are more questions left to be asked. But, um, you know, certainly people don't go to this, uh, these kind of lengths to cover something up if there's nothing to hide. Yeah, it is very troubling. The Liberals, of course, have the right to filibuster, which has been done by the Conservatives, has been done in Parliament previously. But it doesn't look good after the proroguing of Parliament, which many Canadians suspect was done to stop committees investigating Mr. Trudeau over the Wee Charity scandal. So one question here is, will you accomplish your goal, or will disagreement between opposition parties end this pursuit of documentation, which I imagine the Liberals are probably expecting, or maybe they're attempting to engineer? Uh, you know, I, I think that the opposition parties have all put forward uh, you know, different uh, proposals to have a special committee or, or one committee look at the different ways that uh, the government has mismanaged or misappropriated during the uh, during the COVID pandemic, whether it's uh, uh, sweetheart deals for former Liberal MPs with uh, ventilator contracts, or uh, the the spouse of the chief of staff in the Prime Minister's office um, having access, and his organization being responsible for the uh, rent relief subsidy program, or uh, the organization that paid half a million dollars to members of the Trudeau family being asked to administer a contract worth half a billion dollars. So um, the, the Bloc, uh, Quebecois, have put forward proposal on a, on a single committee. The NDP have put forward a proposal. And uh, this week, uh, this coming week in Parliament, um, the, the official opposition, uh, we have on notice the, uh, the possibility that, that we will use an opposition day uh, to, uh, to form an anti-corruption committee and look at these very things. And so um, based on based on what I've heard from other opposition parties and, and their members at committee, uh, there's a willingness to get this information. If something changes between now and when we'd have that vote, uh, I couldn't say. But um, I, I do know that the Liberals are very fearful about what would come out as a result of it. Have you heard anything, and I'm just asking this out of the blue, actually mostly out of the blue. I received a few emails earlier about 
MPs being called to Ottawa for possibly a snap election call. Have you heard anything about that going down this weekend? Well, I've heard that the government house leader, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, is refusing to rule out if they would make, um, you know, make it a confidence vote. But look, th- this government can call an election anytime they want one. Uh, to to make the opposition day motion a confidence motion uh, would be a little uh, complex, I think. It doesn't state in the motion that we don't have confidence in the government. I mean, I, I don't, uh, but but that's not what this motion is about. And so uh, if, if the government is preparing to engineer its, its own defeat in the commons, uh, instead of uh, helping Canadians during a pandemic, uh, I, I think that that uh, certainly would give rise to a lot more questions about what could be in those documents. Uh, for the part of the official opposition, um, our our rotations in keeping with the uh, the agreement to limit the number of members in the House of Commons, uh, that's that's the practice that we're looking to put forward this week. Uh, but uh, you know, certainly uh, in in politics in a minority context, anything's possible. Yeah. So uh, what next then? Because and I'd like you as well, please, to speak to the redacted documents issue which the Finance Committee is demanding. You mentioned it earlier. but So what happens going forward? Ethics, finance, same situation as we had last week, this past week? Yeah, so I, I was on a, a panel interview on uh, a CBC morning show, and Liberal MP Greg Fergus confirmed that, in, in response to a question from the host, that there, they would continue to filibuster the committees uh, unless the House leaders agreed not to not to pursue the documents. And so... Uh, certainly, that's not an agreement that's going to be hatched uh, between um, the official opposition and the government. We're going to continue to press for these answers. So, so I, I don't, I don't know what resolution we would get other than uh, through forming a, a single special committee, an anti-corruption committee, to look at all of these things. Because uh, in its current form, the the standing committee on uh, on ethics is going to meet on Monday morning, and we're going to be debating the same motion. And the Finance Committee was supposed to meet on Friday, but uh, the chair uh, reneged on his commitment to call a meeting and or to hold the meeting. And and so when they meet next, uh, they will be dealing with the question of privilege of the government illegally redacting documents against the order of a parliamentary committee. So we're going to continue to press them. And they, they've said, the government members have said that, you know, that this is a waste of time. We should be helping Canadians. Look, this is on them. They could, re- they could have resolved this in 10 minutes. We are hundreds of hours lost on their filibustering just to protect uh, corruption in, in the prime minister's office, corruption around the cabinet table. And if that's not the case, uh, then certainly there's no harm in letting us see what's in the documents. We have offered and afforded them every possible protection to ensure that no one's personal privacy is violated in the review and tabling of these documents. Uh, that's, that was a straw man argument. This is just very much about protecting one individual, and that's Justin Trudeau. Yeah, and we have about 30 seconds left. It's true, isn't it, that the parliamentary law clerk has actually wrote a, wrote a letter to his counterpart in the Ethics Committee, or, or the Finance Committee, I guess it was, uh, challenging the, uh, the redactions that were, that were made at the bureaucratic level. Yeah, that's right, and, and quite unprecedented to have the parliamentary law clerk, an independent uh, officer in Parliament, writing a letter to contradict what the government had said. We had Liberal members out saying, nope, nope, we didn't do any of the redactions. It was all done by the law clerk. And the law clerk was put in an, in an impossible position and had to write a public letter, an open letter, and say, uh, 
look, we didn't red- I didn't redact these documents. The redactions that were made were not in keeping with the order of this parliamentary committee. So we were we were promised government right. by default by, by Justin Trudeau, and that's very much not what we're seeing. They need to release Please. the documents. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.